I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 14th, 2014. Coming up, it's the 50th anniversary of the Surgeon General's campaign against smoking. We're going to talk to Dr. Amy Lukowski from Jewish National Health about smoking cessation programs that really work and a special program to help pregnant women stop smoking. And we'll hear from Dr. Lisa Miller of the University of Colorado at Davis about new research she led on the health effects of inhaling wildfire smoke on young children. Monkeys, in this case. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science from the How on Earth team. In the last 15 years, the incidence of autism spectrum disorders has doubled. Small wonder that the Journal of Behavioral and Developmental Priorities reports that families with autistic children try more alternative treatments than other families do. The UC Davis School of Medicine led the research, and its scientists point out that therapies such as meditation and gluten-free diets are probably safe and might offer benefits. They warned of potential hazards from B vitamin shots or antifungal medications. They urged parents to consult with a medical doctor before trying alternative approaches. Currently, conventional medicine offers no cure. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. As atmospheric temperature and water use go up in the coming century, European dry spells will likely become longer and more frequent. River basins in southern Europe are currently the most susceptible to such changes. A joint study between environmental research institutes in both Italy and Germany considered different greenhouse gas emissions levels and water consumption scenarios. The scenarios were driven through hydrological computer simulations. The results suggest that climate change may drop stream flows by almost half and nearly double the length of dry spells. Greater water use will add another serious burden in Spain, southern France, Italy, and the Balkans. Look to the journal Hydrology and Earth Science System to learn more. For How on Earth, this is Kendra Kruger. MIT astronomers say they can use starlight passing through exoplanets' atmospheres to tell how massive those planets are. The new technique has been tested on an out-of-this-solar-system, Jupiter-sized planet. When the planet passed in front of its star, some light was let through and some was blocked. Air pressure gradients, temperature, and density were found using the transmitted light. The researchers then calculated the planet's mass using a simple equation. With new, more powerful telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope planned for 2018, the masses of planets more like Earth may also be measurable. The new research was published in Science. For How on Earth, I'm Ted Burnham. Good news for caffeine fans. Caffeine doesn't just perk you up and calm you down, as an old TV commercial claimed, but it may also spark a better ability to retain memories. In a study at Johns Hopkins, 
researchers showed test subjects pictures, then gave the normally decaffeinated subjects either a placebo or caffeine tablet five minutes later. The next day, subjects were shown another set of pictures, some the same and some just slightly different. The caffeine-stimulated group was able to better distinguish the nearly similar images. Pattern separation, said the scientists, showed that the caffeine improved the subject's long-term memory. The research was published in the journal Nature Neuroscience. For How on Earth, I'm Beth Bartel. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. You might remember that TV public service announcement from 1983 with R2-D2 and C-3PO. I'm Jim Pullen, here to help us celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Surgeon General's first report on health and smoking is Dr. Amy Lukowski. Dr. Lukowski is the clinical director of the Health Initiatives Program for National Jewish Health. Welcome to How on Earth, Amy. Thank you, Jim. It's so good to talk with you this morning. Amy, uh, can you let us know uh, where, uh, where we've come from in the past 50 years with respect to smoking and health? Well, where we've come is we've made significant strides. Um, the, the Surgeon General's report came out in 1964, and at that time, more than 42% of U.S. adults smoked. And currently, we have about 18% of adults who smoke. So we, re- we have reduced that number to almost half or over half. That is so great made, progress. We've made great strides. Indeed. But there have been some, there have been some uh, slips, haven't there, especially with respect to women and smoking. More women now smoke relative to men than in the past. Yes, absolutely. And, and what we're seeing are the numbers are flattening out. And so we're, we're looking at the population and really trying to pick apart who are the people that are having the difficulty really kicking the habit for good. And so women are a part of that, um, you know, pregnant women, um, special populations, those um, struggling with behavioral health and mental health concerns. Um, those are populations that, that really have a difficulty quitting. Is there a best way to quit smoking, and, and why do we know that? There is a best way. The best way for somebody to quit is to use behavioral counseling and pharmacotherapy in conjunction, and what we know is that that doubles the chance of somebody quitting for good. And so here at National Jewish, we provide quitline services for 12 states, including Colorado, and that is the service that we offer. So we offer personalized telephone coaching that really connects people who want to quit or who are even thinking about quitting um, with an experienced quit coach who can help them through the process. Tell us a little bit about the pharmacological component of that. Absolutely. So with the Colorado Quit Line, somebody can call in and they can, they can receive a free supply of nicotine patches, which are really helpful in quitting. So what happens is when somebody smokes um, for a long time, their 
body becomes addicted, they become physiologically addicted. They can also be psychologically addicted as well. So what the nicotine replacement therapy or any quit medication such as varenicline or bupropion can do is really help to um, help the, the person quitting to really deal with withdrawal symptoms and cravings that are so prevalent when somebody is, is um, coming off of tobacco. Why do we know that this is a, an effective treatment? What are the uh, what are the re- kind of reports and studies that have been done to determine that this is the best way to stop smoking? Yeah, the the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force um, has come out with um, clinical practice guidelines. Um, they came out in um, 2000 and have have updated them in 2008, and those are the best practices. So those are that's the science that we know um, that really helps people quit. And so those are the standards that we here at the Quitline utilize, and it's the standards um, that are that are best practices to to help people quit. Why, why is there a special program to help women stop smoking while they're pregnant? Obviously, it's harmful to it's harmful to the fetus. It's hard, harmful to the unborn child. It's harmful to the women. But do women who are pregnant need uh, something special to help them stop? Absolutely. We still know that um, 20% of pregnant women still continue to smoke throughout their pregnancy. And so we have developed here in Colorado and across the country a specialized program that really supports women um, through their pregnancy and postpartum. So the participants receive at least nine coaching calls throughout pregnancy and after delivery. And they really have the opportunity to work with uh, one, the same coach, throughout their quitting process. Um, They have a text messaging program that provides tailored messaging to them throughout the program, and they have rewards that are available to them for completing calls during the program. How effective is that, Amy? It's been very effective. It's been something that, um, as as we piloted here in Colorado, some of our other states have picked up, and um, we see that that our women... um, you know, are quitting um, at a at a greater rate compared to the standard population, and this is typically a high risk population, um, and so we're seeing great success with that program. Can you explain how young people can break the connection between drinking and smoking here in Boulder? Uh, there, I see a lot of uh, young people drinking and smoking, kind of partying, uh, drinking and smoking all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's very common for young people. Um, that's actually one of um, the triggers or what we call a high-risk situation for young people. And so when we, talk, when we talked back about the addiction, you know, there's those behavioral cues or things in someone's life that they associate with um, using um, cigarettes or smoking. And so part of quitting and part of going through that process is really working through those situations such as drinking for young people to say, what can I do in place of that? What can help support me in those situations? And early on, frankly, it may be even avoiding those situations early on in the quit process. And once they have success in quitting, um, it may be going back into those situations, but going in with a plan, a plan to um, you know, maybe use alternatives, maybe um, go to a different spot um, or, you know, something like that. So it's really working with an individual to come up with a personalized plan that will work for them. We just have about a minute or so left, Amy. Can you tell us about e-cigarettes? They seem to be all the rage now. What are they and are they safe? And are the tobacco companies bound? We just have a, a minute or so. 
Uh, so electronic cigarettes, also known as e-cigarettes, are battery-operated devices um, that generally contain cartridges filled with nicotine, um, sometimes a flavoring and other chemicals. And what this does is it, um, the e-cigarette turns the nicotine um, into a vapor that's then inhaled by the user. So that's the, the, um, what the e-cigarette does. But what we, what we do know is we don't know enough about e-cigarettes. Um, they're being widely used, um, partly because they're being marketed as a cessation aid, but they're not a proven cessation aid. And so, you know, there's been limited testing by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and um, they're not they're not a, a proven or effective way to quit. Um, but unfortunately, that's how people are. Um, thinking about these aids. So, so the jury's still out on this. We need more conclusive scientific evidence to see if this is really a cessation aid and what are the long-term health effects of e-cigarettes. Well, thank you very, very much, Amy. I noticed there was a Yale report that said 8 million lives have been saved in the past 50 years because of the Surgeon General's report. Our guest today has been Amy Lukowski with National Jewish Health. Thanks again, Amy. Sure. Thank you, Jim. All right. Look soon for more on the 50th anniversary of the Surgeon General's report with special content on HowOnEarthRadio.org. You're listening to How on Earth, KGNU's Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. And speaking of smoke, it's been known for some time that breathing in smoke from wildfires, or to some degree wood stoves for that matter, is bad for your health. Many studies have shown that when children are exposed to inhalable particulate matter early in life, their lungs don't function properly. But what's not been very well understood is some of the more long-term effects and the so-called biologic mechanism. That is precisely what's happening in a person's body that causes the harmful effects. Also, there's just not much data on long-term exposure to air pollutants, specifically on the immune system of human infants and school children. But a new study helps to narrow the gaps in understanding the impacts of air pollutant exposure early in life. And in fact, the study was conducted on monkeys, not humans. Dr. Lisa Miller led the new study. She's an associate professor in the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of California, Davis, and she's associate director of research at the California National Primate Research Center at the university. Dr. Miller joins us on the phone from her home in Davis. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So let's just zoom right into the location. I mean, we certainly know wildfires more than we should in Colorado here, but there you're looking at what the effects over one summer in 2008 in California? Yes, that's correct. So this, uh, the circumstances of this event were actually quite unusual, um, and it was due to uh, this uh, an unusual weather pattern which triggered um, dry lightning, and um, which elicited a, a number of uh, wildfires in Northern California at that time. So the, the actual wildfires uh, were about 200 miles from this area, um, but smoke from those wildfires was actually carried in, again, due to this weather pattern um, into our Sacramento Valley. And lastly, we can blame the weather for this again, um, 
during this period of time, um, the smoke from those fires actually actually stayed within our valley um, in this in this case for about a 10-day period of time, um, which triggered very high levels of what we call PM 2.5 within our area. And could you break down a bit PM 2.5? This is very small particulate matter that, that gets in the lungs, right? Right, right. So particulate matter, by definition, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold, um, is Sorry. two and a half microns in diameter. That's, that's the, the the strict definition of particulate matter. So um, just so people in the audience get a perspective on how small two and a half microns is, um, that's, uh, that can be compared to uh, about a 30th of the diameter of a human hair. So these are very small um, molecules or, or, or particles. Um, what uh, is distinct about particulate matter is that it's actually a combination of multiple components, molecular components, so chemicals, um, metals, as well as um, dust particles or soil particles. So it's a mixture of things, and in, that mixture can actually vary depending upon the source of, of the particulate matter. And speaking of the source, is this much different than from, say, particulate matter from inhaling fossil fuel combustion? Um, that's a really good question. Um, it appears that it is slightly different. Um, surprisingly, there aren't a lot of studies um, out there on the toxic effects of wildfire smoke particulates as compared to particulate matter from other types of fossil fuel combustion. But there is some evidence, very limited, to suggest that chemically uh, it, it's quite different. So before we get to the findings, I want to know, why did you do this on monkeys and not human kids, for that matter? That's a really good question. <laughs> so the, the, the reason we studied this is it was actually a naturally occurring event. So because the smoke uh, was coming into the area, all of the humans in this area were exposed, as well as the monkeys that were housed outdoors at uh, the center where I, uh, my research laboratory is located. So um, our center, the California National Primate Research Center, has a large um, outdoor colony of monkeys. And what made this actually even more um, interesting and, uni and unique um, with regards to the exposures is that this period of time coincided with what we call, around here call birthing season. So uh, rhesus monkeys, which is the type of monkey that we study, um, typically give birth during the spring. So we had a very large number of uh, young uh, monkeys, we call them infants, um, outdoors, also being exposed to the wildfire smoke uh, particulate matter, just as the humans were in our area. So essentially, other than them living outside most of the time, they're not being exposed to anything other than what humans would have been. Exactly, right? exactly. Although I have to say they have a very well-defined diet, so um, they're, they're not eating the junk food that we are. <laughs> <laughs> and just to clear the air, since I know primate research is pretty sensitive in the country increasingly, so this was not invasive procedure. It sounds like you just... That's, how did you actually test them? That's a really great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, what's really important here is that uh, what, what we tried to do when we proposed the study to the California Air Resources Board, which funded this study, um, 
um, our goal was to actually um, collect measures on our animals that could, um, in parallel, be measured in kids. And so clearly the approaches had to be very non-invasive, the type of measures that one could get at a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. So what we did with our animals is that we collected a very small blood sample and we uh, collected information on lung function. Um, so again, all very non-invasive measures. And what were the surprises and, and key findings? So the key findings, uh, as you say, uh, were actually quite surprising. So as I, as I indicated uh, at the beginning, um, the exposures took place when these animals were very young. Um, what we did is we actually studied these animals when they were three years of age. So in human terms, um, that would be uh, an adolescent or a very young teenager. So we studied these animals quite when they were much older and, uh, and, and uh, um, had not been exposed to any type of high-level uh, air pollution exposure in, in, um, during that uh, uh, one, two, three-year period of time. And so what we found is that uh, when we collected their blood sample, what we did is we took it back into the laboratory and we, uh, we stimulated the blood samples with a component of bacteria. So what this does is it actually mimics um, an infectious response or response to infectious disease um, in a tissue culture dish. And what we found is that the animals that were exposed to the wildfire smoke uh, responded in a very dampened manner as compared to their non-exposed counterparts. Um, in addition, their lung function actually showed evidence of decline, again, in conjunction with their dampened immune response to infection. Boy, so um, we've just got a minute left. So what are the implications then, as far as you can see now, for humans, especially kids, as we're no doubt going to be exposed to more and more wildfires over time? Sure, that's a really great question. Um, so uh, the caveat to all of this is that these monkeys were living outdoors during this period of time, so their exposure levels were probably higher than the humans that were exposed during this time. But again, they were breathing the same air, and they are primates, just as humans are. So the type of responses that they uh, they developed were, were probably quite similar. So the implications are that youngsters that might be exposed to this smoke um, may also have long-term lasting effects on their ability to respond to infections. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your coming on the show. That was Dr. Lisa Miller, Associate Professor at UC Davis in Veteran Veterinary Medicine and Associate Director of Research at the California National Primate Research Center. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Thanks, Jim, for being our executive producer this quarter. Jim also produced today's show. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Bad Company. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen.